This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. This week, a highlights edition with excerpts from a number of podcasts that we've recently aired, including one about pre-Hollywood filmmaking in New York State, female war correspondent Dickie Chappelle, the history of an Adirondack serial killer, a submarine rescue, and more. And more includes a very interesting interview with a man named Chris Wimmer, who writes about the Old West, the Wild West. And he's come to the conclusion that there was one season, the summer of 1876, when many of the important events of the Old West, the defining moments, took place. Here's Chris Wimmer. But the story goes that they met as young buffalo hunters, I believe in one particular season, and then they drifted their own separate ways and eventually reunited uh, when Wyatt Earp became assistant marshal of Dodge City in the spring of 1876. Bat Masterson was recovering from a gunshot wound at his family's farm not too far away, and Wyatt called on his old friend and asked him to come and be a part of this new regime of lawmen who were taking over Dodge City. I'm Chris Wimmer, author of The Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season that Defined the American West. The book itself, a bit of an experiment for me. I thought it was a really interesting way to combine several storylines. Through my podcast, Legends of the Old West, I discovered that lots of big things in the Old West era happened in a very short space of time. I thought it would make a really interesting book to try to weave all those stories together in one narrative. So the book focuses on several major storylines that all happened in about a 90-day period in the summer of 1876. Those major things include the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the first partnership between Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson in Dodge City, the arrival of Wild Bill and the growing boomtown of Deadwood, and then the murder of Wild Bill in Deadwood, and then finally the great disastrous Northfield raid by Jesse James and his gang of outlaws. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Chris Wimmer, who is a writer, a host, podcaster, and producer. Uh, he worked in the film and journalism industries for 18 years before creating Black Barrel Media. And this is his uh, first book, The Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season uh, that Defined the American uh, West. Um, tell us ab about w what uh, drew you to make this kind of a book. Why did you want to combine different things about what's happening in the Old West at a particular moment? It was because I, I read a lot of books for research for my podcast, Legends of the Old West. So I had already done lots of research about each of these individual topics, and it hit me in about the summer of 2019 that in all the books I'd read about each individual topic, they very rarely referenced anything else that was going on in America during that time. And it just so happens that in that summer of 1876, there were lots of really big things happening around the country. And so I just thought rather than focusing exclusively on the Battle of the Little Bighorn or the career of Jesse James or anything else like most books do, I would try to combine them all into one and take each piece and strip it down a little bit and tell it in the most fun, fast way that I could and weave them all together so that you can really feel the context of what it would have been like to maybe be alive during that time period. 
did people who were alive in that time period get it? You know, that, boy, this is the Wild West. We'll be looking back on this for centuries. You know, that's a really interesting question, and one I've asked myself a lot as I have been thinking very much in that direction. How much did the people who were alive at that time recognize the enormity of the things that were happening? That's Chris Wimmer about the Old West. Another episode aired recently was with WAMC radio film commentator and archivist and historian Audrey Kupferberg, who discussed pre-Hollywood filmmaking in New York State and other topics. Uh, The first order of business was to disabuse me of kind of an erroneous opinion I had. In the early days, the films that were made, some of them were very scandalous. They were very direct, showing sex and violence specifically. I find that to be a lot of baloney, because I've looked at films that are considered terribly scandalous by our standards, <laughs> you know, in, in 2023. Uh, forget it, they're, they're not. My name is Audrey Kupferberg, and I am film commentator at WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Today, I'd like to talk about films made in New York State at a time when there was not yet a Hollywood. The pre-Hollywood days are very interesting. In fact, the motion picture patents war took place before Hollywood was established, and I'd like to say a few words about that. Audrey Kupferberg is with us, film commentator for Public Radio, WAMC. She's an emeritus lecturer in film history, the University at Albany. Previously was director of the Film Study Center at Yale. She's written books about popular culture, people, and topics, many of them written with her late husband, Rob Edelman. She lives in Amsterdam, New York, where she grew up. I know a little bit about this, Audrey, which is they always say, when you you know a little bit about it, it's a dangerous thing. But I I recall doing a newspaper column about this couple uh, who made movies of silent films up in uh, Canada Lake. But that wasn't the only, they weren't the only ones doing that. Yeah, it's really amazing how many independent film producers there were in New York State, in Florida, in in Maine, all all over the East Coast in particular. Something happened uh, that made it very difficult for a lot of people to make movies, and that was uh, due to the efforts of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison set up his uh, first studio, the Black Mariah, in the 1890s. And uh, he was was making one film after the other. He patented a lot of his uh, detail on equipment. Uh, At that time, there were other people interested in making movies, and they had to go through Edison to acquire their their projectors, their their cameras, uh, and uh, after a while, it it seemed like uh, it wasn't fair that Edison was taking advantage of people who uh, were simply involved in American competition. So, a very nasty situation occurred. 
and mm. it's called the Motion Picture Patents War. Uh, actually, even even young kids who were delivering film prints on bicycles around 1905, 1910, were attacked. So that's why it's referred to as a war. It really was violent at times. Eventually, the, uh, the American court system got involved and uh, said to Edison, you cannot be a trust, so uh, you, you cannot have full control. And that opened the way for normal competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, what was happening was uh, in the earliest days, the 1890s till 1910, 1911, uh, the East Coast film production was dominant. And uh, you had Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you had certainly the capital of, of motion picture production was New York City. But there were times when people who were producing movies in New York City needed to get out into the countryside. So uh, the, the second, or not really the second uh, uh, capital of filmmaking, but certainly an important uh, place where films were made was in the Catskills. Mm-hmm. There was a town called Cuddybackville, Mm-hmm. And uh, D.W. Griffith of the Biograph mm-hmm. Studios, along with Lillian Gish and Mary Pickford and Owen Moore and Bobby Heron and the whole bunch who were famous filmmakers and actors, would get on a stagecoach and go from New York City up north into the Catskills and uh, stay at the Cutterback Inn and shoot westerns and country films, rural dramas, and this became very popular. That was film critic Audrey Kupferberg. Moving on to Larissa Reinhardt, who's written a biography of female war correspondent Dickie Chappelle, titled First to the Front. She got into MIT, I think, as one of only, like, three women in the engineering class of 1934. And not only that, she got a scholarship to MIT. However, she went to go study aeronautical engineering because what she wanted to do was she actually wanted to fly airplanes. And her mother forbade her from flying airplanes. And so she thought learning to build them would be a close second. And it wasn't. This is Larissa Reinhardt. I'm the author of First to the Front, the biography of the trailblazing female war correspondent, Dickie Chappelle, who covered nearly every major conflict from World War II to Vietnam. She was the only woman on Okinawa reporting. She was in the Sierra Maestras with Castro. She was the first Western reporter uh, embedded with the Algerian Liberation Front. She marched through the jungles of Laos with special forces and jumped out of planes with the South Vietnamese Airborne. So I was just really excited to write her biography and get to know her and why Dickie Chappelle went to such great lengths to tell the stories of all these people 
um, fighting for freedom uh, around the world, right? Because her reporting covered the period from 1945 to 1965. Our guest is cultural critic and historian Larissa Reinhardt, who writes about art, war, and politics. She has a master's degree from New York University in Experimental Humanities, a bachelor's in literature from University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, her book is about uh, Dickie Chappelle. Uh, first off, she had a different name when she was born. What was her name? Her name was Georgette Meyer. So she, you know, was named, there's a number of people in her family named George, Georgette. Her aunt was actually named just George. So she was named Georgette. And I think like a lot of sort of American self-made folk heroes, she reinvented herself many times. And she, she went through sort of a number of names and settled on Dickie. And no one is quite sure the derivation of her eventual sort of moniker. She does indicate that she took it because she loved Richard Byrd, who was, if you remember, the pilot who was the first American to fly or the first to fly over the North Pole. And she loved to fly. And so she took on his name as a sort of homage mm -hmm. or perhaps aspiration. Or at least that's what's, that is mm -hmm. one um, explanation and, that she gives throughout her life. And Chappelle, she married a man named Chappelle, right? Yeah, she did. She was married to Tony Chappelle for 15 years. And she took his name. And she came from... Uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Yes, she came from Sherwood, which is a small suburb right outside of Milwaukee. And, you know, it was a very uh, German suburb. There were German uh, language newspapers. There were, you know, everyone spoke German. She spoke German. Um, and that is particularly important as we get into World War II. And then, of course, um, for Dickey, uh, the post-World War II era, as she is um, documenting the um, post-war sort of effects uh, in Europe. And she was really able to, to speak German to people and get, uh, get their story more than a lot of other folks could just because she, she really spoke the language and to a certain degree understood that culture. That's author Larissa Reinhardt about her book, First to the Front, about war correspondent Dickie Chappelle. We're on the road to our 500th episode, and we brought back from 2015 an episode with Larry Gooley, who wrote the history of Adirondack serial killer Robert Garrow. One of the most compelling episodes we worked early on uh, was put online as episode 49, March 2nd of 2015, an interview with Lawrence Gooley, Northern New York native and popular author. Larry Gooley attracted much attention with his account of the life and death of Adirondack serial killer Robert Garrow, who was killed in 1978. Larry's book is called Terror in the Adirondacks, The True Story of Serial Killer Robert F. Garrow. When the book was newly published, Larry drew very large crowds. Hundreds of people would come to his Robert Garrow book talks. Why did you want to do a book on this topic? Well, 
there's actually a personal angle to it. Um, at about the time Garrow was being hunted, I was in my late teens, and um, I, from where I live way up north, I could see the mountains. I absolutely loved the views, and I could not wait to be a climber. So I had just really begun climbing, and I was going wild with it, going everywhere, and just really enjoying being in the woods. And if you meet someone, you knew they were like-minded. And when the Garrow thing happened, we were suddenly warned to stay out of the woods. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, tough guy, a weightlifter and everything. So I, I just kept going, but I did start to carry a weapon because you never knew who you were going to meet out there. And and it always stuck with me. Uh, I didn't know the whole story on Garrow and always angry that he ruined it for me, that if you met someone a couple of miles in on the trail, you would greet them and know that they were just like you. They just loved the outdoors. And after Garrow did his thing, it was more like always glancing over my shoulder to see who it was and to make sure I was safe. Mm. It just you know, made everything at least a little bit uncomfortable because you realize you never know. You're listening to a Highlights episode of the Historian's Podcast. Occasionally, I'll string together uh, several of my columns, which I write for the Daily Gazette and Amsterdam Recorder, called Focus on History. One episode in which we did that, I had a number of stories of Amsterdam and Gloversville soda bottlers walking for sport and a submarine rescue. This uh, particular column had kind of a a spin-off point from the news of the day with the loss of, I think it was five lives in this uh, submersible that was trying to reach the Titanic to see that uh, tremendous shipwreck on the bottom of the ocean floor and the uh, submersible or little sub- little submarine, I guess you'd say, um, broke apart and killed all five uh, people on board. The story I have in the, uh, that I wrote a Focus on History column about had to do with another incident involving a submarine which sank. There was greater loss of life, but they were able to save some of the crew members. And here's the story. Donato Danny Persico entered the submarine's escape hatch crawling up a steel ladder. He crawled up the ladder because his hands were too chilled to grasp the ladder's rungs. And can't you imagine what was going through his mind when he encountered that particular problem after what he'd been through? Like you can't even climb a ladder. But he was able to get up uh, the ladder by crawling and got into the uh, escape hatch of the submarine. Persico lived on Broad Street on Amsterdam's south side. He was one of the survivors from the submarine USS Squalus, which sank May 23, 1939, in the Atlantic Ocean off the Isles of Shoals, New Hampshire. Valves malfunctioned during a test drive on the new submarine, the after compartments filled with water drowning 26 men. Squalus settled on the ocean floor in 243 feet of water. As it went down, Persico, who worked in the torpedo room, was almost crushed by a torpedo. This happened so fast, there was no chance for an alarm, Persico told the Daily Gazette. 
we lost power and lost lights. In the forward compartments, sealed by watertight doors, 33 men, including Persico, were still alive. I had goosebumps, he said. I was scared. And at 20, he was the youngest man on board. Survivors donned woolen coats and stayed still as they could, using as little air as possible. Persico was among the last to be rescued on the fourth trip of a diving bell deployed from the rescue ship USS Falcon. Rescuers used the McCann Submarine Rescue Chamber, a driving bell that could withstand depths beyond lethal limits. The first three trips went perfectly. Captain Oliver Naquin, Persico, and six other sailors were in the diving bell for the last rescue. About halfway up, there were problems with the lifting cables. Rescuers dropped the diving bell back to the bottom and then pulled it up by hand with only one frayed strand of cable still intact. The final rescue took many hours using that frayed cable. Persico's father had died in 1929. The family, including Persico's mother, Carmela Pinto, were kept informed as the rescue unfolded by Amsterdam police, who stopped at the family home with updates. The family received two telegrams from the Navy. The first said Persico was alive. The second said he had been rescued. Continuing with our highlights episode of the Historian's Podcast, Christina Baker Klein was interviewed early in the history of the series back in 2015 about her novel, Orphan Train. On the episode we're about to hear, we go back to a podcast from 2015, an interview with best-selling author Christina Baker Klein. A native of England, Christina lives now in the United States. Her historical novel, Orphan Train, was the Amsterdam Reads selection for 2015. Amsterdam Reads is a program that I've been involved in each year, uh, based at Amsterdam Free Library. What was the Orphan Train movement, Christina? The Orphan Train movement was this period in American history, 75 years from 1854 to 1929, when 250,000 children were sent on trains from the East Coast to the Midwest in a labor program. The children were between the ages of 2 and 14, and they were taken in by usually farmers who needed labor, who needed help on the farm. I mean, your book is a, is a bestseller, and there have been other media treatments of the, of the orphan trains. Honestly, until we decided up here to read your book, I'd never heard of this. I know. It's pretty amazing. I always say that this is a story that has been hidden in plain sight in American history. Uh, and the truth is, the history of our country, in fact, the history of most countries, is not the history of the poor and the dispossessed. So there are many reasons that we don't know more about the orphan trains, and I 
you know, I talk about those often when I'm giving talks, but um, one of the biggest is just that it was never a part of the history that we learn in classrooms. Mm. How did you get interested in the subject? Well, I was lucky enough to stumble on this story when um, I was visiting my in-laws in Fargo, North Dakota, and um, we were stuck inside during a snowstorm, and my mother-in-law opened this book that was a celebration of the small town of Jamestown, North Dakota, where she had grown up, and there was an article about the orphan trains, and it featured her father, who... Mm rode on a train with his siblings, his four siblings, to Jamestown, the small town, and, um, set, you know, made a life there. She never knew anything about it. She knew he had been orphaned, but didn't know any other details. And in the course of my research, I eventually found that he wasn't, he and his siblings weren't on an official orphan train. They, um, they had come there as orphans, but they were um, sort of unofficially there, not from the East Coast, but from Missouri. But at the same time, it highlights how many children were kind of traveling on trains around the country. There were way more even than just the numbers of the orphan trains, which are quite sizable as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fascinated. I'd never heard of this. I'd never studied it. And I realized that it was a really big story that people were not talking about. And so I started researching it. Now, your book, which is, an, is a novel, work of fiction, follows one young girl who has, it seems to me, she has bad to horrible experiences in her first two placements, generally a, a good placement in a third home. Is that kind of a typical experience, or is there no typical experience of the orphan train riders? You know, that is a great question. I actually think what I tried to do was to create an experience for my train rider that was typical, typical. A lot of train riders ended up in multiple homes. For many, many reasons, transitions were often very difficult for these children. Um, They had had often no stability in their own lives, and it took a a lot of work for them to assimilate. There was also a lot of prejudice against them. People were skeptical and even... um, sort of prejudiced against, I suppose, the orphan train riders, thinking that they were calling them vermin and trash from the streets of New York. So it was difficult for these children a lot of times. And some of them had really happy stories, and some of them had really terrible stories. The vast majority had a combination. They would go into multiple homes. They would have their names changed um, several times. And that happened because, uh, you know, if you think about a taking in a dog from the pound, for example, that, you know, <laughs> Dear, yes. people changed the names of dogs, and it was there was sort of a similar mentality. Just enough time for a history mystery question. Who was the only one of the first five American presidents who did not come from Virginia? The answer in a moment. I do want to put in a plug for the Historian's Podcast Yearly Fun Drive. You can connect to GoFundMe on our website, bobcudmore.com or send a check in the mail to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horseman Drive in Scotia. The answer to the question is John Adams from Massachusetts, the only one of the first five presidents who didn't come from Virginia, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe were all Virginians. 
A few seconds with Kirsten Marshall about her book about the American Revolution, Witness to the Revolution. Is there one thing that stands out from writing this book that changed an opinion you had or affected you from in, in terms of what the American Revolution was? I have really come to understand it as being a far more complex animal than you really do learn in public school. John Adams described that maybe a third of the people were loyal to the crown, a third of the people were rebels, and a third of the people were like, could you just stay off my lawn? Hi, I'm Kirsten Marshall, author of Adventure into History. I write the historical fiction series, The Enlightened. The first book is Witness to the Revolution. It has strong elements of fantasy to keep it interesting and a nice, sweet love story, which may be a little spiced down the road. The first book is about a woman from our time who is fighting for survival alongside a captain in America's Revolutionary War who is hunted by a dark entity that threatens his secret mission and vows to help her find her way home. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.